With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, and thank you for listening to Living Wealthy Radio. Heard around the web on livingwealthyradio.com, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. I am Teresa Kuhn, helping you live wealthier. Resources are available for you at livingwealthyradio.com. What if you could see into the future? What if your investment strategy relied on advanced knowledge of how world markets and business trends would play out? Well, it may sound like science fiction, but one team is making it a reality. The experts at Meriglin have created a predictive and analytics system using AI technology to forecast market moves months ahead of time. Joining us today is Meriglin founder and CEO, Kevin Massengill. He is a former Army Ranger, a successful businessman, and an investment visionary. His data-driven perspective on investment and market predictions is changing the game. And he's here to share with us more about predictive analytics and offer some key insights on developing investment opportunities. Welcome to Living Wealthy Radio, Kevin. So tell us a little bit about how you came to work with legendary financial author, Jim Rickards. Um, so uh, he and I met, um, I was running the Middle East for one of the defense contractors and I'd read his book, Currency Wars, and we were in a large room, probably 60 folks, ex-finance ministers, ex-ministers of defense. I was there because I was the token defense guy. I was the ranking U.S. defense executive in the Middle East. And Jim and I were pretty much the only two guys in the entire room that were hard money Austrian gold guys. Now, I use Austrian advisedly. Jim would tell you that if Ludwig Mises were alive today, he'd be a complexity theorist. Um, but you, you get my drift. And so we would basically, we were the only ones that would laugh at each other's jokes. I would ask uh, some above average C that they were all genuflecting to, how is it that it's casus belli if an enemy combatant hyperinflates your currency to destroy your economy? Or it's a capital crime if some knucklehead counterfeiter does it in your local town because everybody realizes what they're doing is destructive. How is it casus belli if an enemy combatant does it and counterfeit capital crime if a criminal does it, but just simply a benign policy choice if your central banking cartel does it? How does that work for you? And, you know, the room just annoyed. (laughs) And one voice across the room. Ah. (laughs) <laughs> I'm like, oh, I, I like that guy. Uh, that's how that's how Jim and I met. Pretty funny. Very cool. Very cool. And Mariglin, am I am I pronouncing that correctly? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. It's um. Yeah. yeah, we chose that name. So so for the folks that have read Jim's books, particularly the first, the early one, uh, like Currency Wars or Death of Money. He talks about how the CIA asked him after 9-11 to 
to see whether it was possible to build an algorithm that would scan global financial market data and look for the anomalies that might presage a, a terrorist attack. As you may know, there were people that shorted airline stocks in the United States ahead of 9-11. People shorted rail stocks in the UK ahead of the attacks of 2005. How did that happen, so, do you think? Do you think they had a warning? Oh, we know they did. Sure. Yeah. No, this is, this was, so you can't prosecute it because of signal amplification and other problems. But, but what happens is nothing stays a secret, right? You got 19 people. You can imagine there's probably another order of magnitude, more support forces behind the 19 terrorists, right? So there's at least 200 people that know about this, probably three times that many. And you know, they, they may be all, adherence to the cause, but they all want to make a buck too. And so they figure they'll be slick in three days, 48 hours ahead of the attack, they'll slip in a, you know, buy some puts and who will know. And it's not very much money. You know, these, these guys aren't talking about moving big money that 500 bucks here, a thousand bucks here. But what happens is it causes an anomaly and somebody sees that and they go, okay, well, they look at the news. They don't see any reason for that behavior. So, you know, I'll buy a little of that action. Somebody knows something. Right. And pretty mm-hmm. soon that gets bigger and bigger and bigger, like ripples. And all of a sudden you get, you know, a couple of major fund managers going, yeah, I'll take some of that action. Again, nobody has, at that level, nobody has any idea that there's an attack coming. They just see an, an anomaly in the market. Right. And then all of a sudden something horrific happens and, and they're like, oh my God, and the FBI comes knocking. <laughs> you, know, mm. you, know, and, you know, and you got some explaining to do. And, and it's just simply signal amplification, right? It's just these ripples in the water that starts small. Um, but the point for the agency wasn't a law enforcement problem. Their, 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 their challenge was whether or not it was possible to see that 72 to 48 hours in advance sufficient that you could get a warrant kicking the door, frustrate the attack, right? That's, that was the goal. Mm. And so what they did worked really well. They built a Bayesian inference engine um, and it, it really worked well. What Jim and I have done is we've taken and we've added to that an entire compendium of team science. So we've added two Bayesian, we've added, which is 200-year-old math, we've added behavioral psychology, complexity science, computing with words, textual analysis. You can think natural language programming like Watson, which is who are you doing that with, and historical perspective. Put that all together, you know, shake it vigorously. And what comes out the other side is the very best of both human intelligence and artificial intelligence. You know, the great, the great disappointment that has been artificial intelligence is that while it's artificial, it's just not that intelligent. I mean, it's, it's really fast, it's, it's quite accurate, but it's really stupid, right? A machine can't tell sense from nonsense. It can't tell you if Janet Yellen understands how the world works better than Jim Grant or Stephanie Pomboy, right? It can't tell sense from nonsense. It can count noses. It can tell you that Janet Yellen's popular, right? <laughs> that her view is the, is the consensus, but it has no way to discern and judge whether or not that consensus is just insane, right? Um, insane is too strong a word. If it's alchemy, right? Mm-hmm. Deeply studied, deeply believed in, and all completely wrong. That's the way your listeners ought to think about the economics profession today and central banks and governments in general. 
think alchemy. Think, um, you know, today it's a joke. Everybody just rolls their eyes. It's a punchline, right? But you forget that for millennia, maybe not that long, hundreds of years, it was one of the key sciences of its day. Hundreds of years. Think of the capital. Think of the time and intellect spent studying alchemy, right? Trying to figure out how to turn dross metals into, into gold. And that continued right up until the 1650s. Young Prince Ferdinand II creates the world's first glass-filled thermometer, which allowed them to begin to take measurements, accurate measurements. And they could, for the first time, do repeatable experiments, figure out what happens at what temperature. And all of a sudden, in less than 50 years, right, one academic lifetime, in less than 50 years, alchemy's gone, just gone. And what's replaced it is the foundations of modern scientific chemistry and um, modern metallurgy, right, in 50 years. In our opinion, the economics profession, central banks, governments, PhDs in economics from wonderful schools are alchemists. Very smart people, deep body of knowledge, years of study to learn stochastic equilibrium models and value at risk, and, and it's all garbage. It's all absolute nonsense, and they don't know it. You know, Max Planck had a great phrase. He said, all science advances with the death of one tenured professor at a time. <laughs> right? Because if you and I were graduate students, it wouldn't matter how much we perceive the world accurately. There's not an Ivy League school in the country whose professor, his chair of economics, is going to give you and I permission to do a thesis on why everything they think they know is false. Right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so, so, what Jim and I have done is we think of ourselves as the thermometer. Um, we're going to give an accurate measurement tool to people. We're not going to try and fight them at all. Um, we don't care. Our clients will make so much money that they will be forced to rethink their position. Um, and it's, it's, it looks like magic, right? If I tell you I can see the future three to six months out, you know, your first reaction properly ought to be to roll your eyes and reach for your wallet and make sure I haven't picked your pocket. I mean, it's just nonsensical. But Arthur C. Clarke has a great phrase. He said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Not a great line. So what, what looks line. like magic um, is not. It's just good science. It's just good math. Um, here's, I can describe it in a nutshell. If you and I are, are intelligence analysts at the Pentagon the day after 9-11, and our boss walks in and says, talk to me. We can't say, you know, boss, we just don't have enough data, right? But, but after four or five more attacks like this, we'll, we'll be able to build a database and mm -hmm. do some correlations, regressions, mean reversed. Right? Nobody talks like that in the intelligence community. Mm -hmm. What we do is posit our best hypothesis, right? Guess, if you will. Okay, we think that's Al-Qaeda, right? Here's and we put that on the wall. If we don't know for sure, we just give it a 50-50 weighting. But then, now this comes to Bayes, Bayes inference. 
Now we map out all the indications and warnings. You've heard that phrase before. What are those indications that tell me I'm right, that I should expect to see to confirm that hypothesis? Conversely, what are the warnings I should expect to see to tell me I'm wrong, right? That I need to rethink that hypothesis. That's just Bayes in a nutshell. That's every intelligence organization since Hushai the Archite has been operating like this, right? That's David's great mole into the Absalom revolution. So you take that as a start point. Now we map out all the indications and warnings, and we, we build that first using subject matter expertise, right? We start with a narrative. We start with a, a Jim Grant or Kyle Bass, if you're looking at China, or Stephanie Pombler, or Pippa Malmgren, or Jim Rickards. You start with a, a narrative of people that understand how the world actually functions. They understand that markets are complex adaptive systems. They're not a machine. They don't lend themselves to being tweaked around the margins. You extract conceptual components, the causal linkages. You weight those edges. Now what you wind up with looks like a constellation, a planetary constellation, right, of all these connecting nodes and ideas. Now you've got something that resembles reality, but it's so complex that no human analyst or team of analysts can keep it updated, right? Now, this is the value of turning to a natural language processor like Watson. They can. Watson can. Watson reads, what, 9 million books, articles, transcripts a day, right? Watson, in real time, can update every single one of those nodes, edges, conceptual components. And then over all of that data runs our proprietary complexity science algorithms, 1,000 times a minute, whatever it is. And, and, and what you're getting out the other end of that is a 24-7 live updated thinking that combines the very best minds on the subject with actual real-time intelligence being ingested globally, right? So you could disagree with my assessment. For example, one of, one of our outlooks is that we think China is going to have to devalue the yuan pretty significantly, probably 20%, probably this year. Um, okay, that has some real implications <laughs> on global equity markets. I mean, the last two times they did mild, you know, five and seven percent devaluations. Markets just fell out of bed four days later. Um, so a twenty percent devaluation would get people's attention. We think it's inevitable. We think they don't have any choice. And but but if you were a client and you disagreed, right? Even if you disagreed, you'd still have 24-7 real-time information on why we think what we think, right? You have so much better data than any human group of human analysts could assemble. Uh, it's just inconceivable, right? So that's, that's what Jim and I have done. We've taken the very best of the intelligence communities, Bayesian inference, behavioral psychology, historical perspective, and we've married that with, with what artificial intelligence really can do, right? We haven't asked it to do more than it can do. And that, so now you blend complexity science, computing with words, textual analysis, which is part of that natural language processing for Watson. Now you've got something that's really uh, unique and powerful, right? So it looks like magic, but it's, it's not. Um, So thank you for that summary at the end. You know, the, the beginning part of what you were saying 
was probably a little over the head of most of our listeners because a lot there was a, a lot of conversation around stuff that um, is not typical financial language, right? So bottom line, right. like you said, right in your summary, is you're taking the best of the artificial intelligence, which I think a lot of people now understand what that is to a certain degree, right? right. Watson, right. Um, what Watson does, right? Um, and then you've got an algorithm that you marry with the artificial intelligence to give you information to predict what's going to happen. And so you can make financial decisions based on your predictions. Is that correct? That, that, that's exactly right. So, for example, and it, it, it particularly is effective when we're way out of consensus. Now, the consensus doesn't always get it wrong, but when they do, wow, there's real opportunity there. So, for example, we called Brexit months in advance. People went to the polls convinced that Remain was going to win. We're like, yeah, Brexit wins. Uh, short Sterling. <laughs> we went to uh, uh, into the Trump election for weeks ahead of calling that no, Trump wins. The very morning of the election on Bloomberg, uh, you've got all the confident pundits going, oh, yeah, no, uh, she's going to sweep the East Coast. It'll be an early night. We'll be in bed by 9. She'll lock up the Electoral College, just like her, her husband did in 92. 90, and, and they turn to Jim and they go, you know, the, pol the, pol the polls, the pundits, everything says it's hers to the bag. Uh, but gold's acting funny. You know, what's up with that? And he goes, yeah, it's because they're all wrong. Because <laughs> they're all what? They're all wrong. Um, oh, they're all wrong. The she goes. She goes. You, you don't believe the polls? You, you don't believe the pundits? She, he, no, no. Um, yeah, and, and they gave her the science. He didn't just tell her. He didn't just tell her um, what we thought. He told her why. Right. He gave her the methodology. He said, for example, you're looking at polls. They're oversampling Democrats. Okay, fair enough. You got enough illegal aliens in California. That's probably reasonable. Um, there's more Democrats, but what they're, what they're really doing to skew the data is they're oversampling within that part. They're oversampling African-Americans because there's going to be a great number of Democrats that play the Reagan Democrat role in this election and vote Trump. But African-Americans are more likely to stay with the democratic party, right? 90% of them are likely to vote. So by oversampling African-Americans within your democratic sample is what lets you skew the data, right? And, and that's what they're doing. Um, and, and interestingly enough, he didn't go into, cause you know, probably wasn't appropriate there, but your listeners might be interested. Um, I think we know why they did it. Um, you know, when you, when you tell your the body politic that you've 98% chance of winning, that hurts you as much as your opponent, right? That can depress your turnout as much mm -hmm. as your own, your opponents, right? So if you ask yourself, why did they think that was a value to do, assuming they were bright enough to know they were manipulating the numbers and didn't fall for their own nonsense, right? Assuming they're bright, just because they're evil doesn't mean they're stupid. So assuming that, that they were doing it with rational forethought, ask yourself, what was the value they saw in doing that? And what my deduction, I have no way to prove this, my deduction is that they thought the election was going to be very close. They thought they were going to effectively be able to steal it which they're pretty good at. Um, and if the election is a blowout in the polls going in, you've completely undercut your opponent's ability to challenge the veracity of the election, right? If, if you stole a couple counties, because you know, that's what you do, and, and you win the election, 
your opponent can't come back and say that was fraud because everybody's known for six months this was going to be a blowout. What are you talking about? Right? That's what I think they were doing. They were they were frustrating the future challenge to what they planned to do to put that election to the top. That's what I thought they were doing by the mm. skewed polls. Again, can't prove it, just conjecture. But, you know, Occam's razor would tell you people don't do something for nothing, right? They were doing that for a reason. And, and it wasn't just because they all wanted to, to sniff the back of their own necks. I mean, they had something in mind, some value they saw out of doing that. And since it can depress your turnout as well as your opponents, there had to be something other than, you know, turnout. Anyway, that's just conjecture. Are you familiar with Cliff High and Hashtag Tumen? Sure. And so how is your algorithm different or similar to what he does, which is basically use, I think, the art and science of predictive linguistics, which for our listeners, basically what he does, or my understanding, I should say, of what he does is um, he's got an algorithm and has had it for, I think, decades now, takes information on the internet and right. turns it into uh, analyzes it to predict um, the future based on anomalies in in conversations on the internet I, I'm sure I didn't explain yeah, that no, that's, well, I, I think that's a that's a fair way to describe it um, it's interesting as all get out and I really enjoy listening to him he's wicked smart um, yeah, I, I, I he, he loses me a little bit when he gets into the woo-woo Antarctic stuff. Um, but but you know, enough of what he has projected has has come to pass that I find him just fascinating to listen to. And and there's actually some real science behind what he's doing. There's a recent book published by a young Indian researcher who uses the Google search. Um, data that people are putting into the into the internet that is accessible, I guess, to everybody. And he is showing the enormous number of uses to which that data can be put for real-time analysis, whether that's unemployment data, whether that's um, rise and fall of, of of welfare benefits. You know, people. I think. Oh, the book's uh, uh, the book or the talk is called "Everybody Lies." And his, his premise is that the way we normally collect data is flawed because everybody lies. <laughs> and, and, and the only person they tell the truth to is the Google search bar. <laughs> I and so love by scanning it. that data, you're getting real time and real time data on what people are really thinking, what they care about. Really an interesting concept. And, in, and to the extent that that is part of the data mining that that Cliff High is working with, you know, he's getting you know superb data, right? So, so, but to answer your question, how that's different from us? So we don't we don't do anything with consensus. We don't care what's popular. In fact, I, I, the woman that owns Watson, she's a brilliant, brilliant computer scientist. She's the chief technology officer for IBM's cognitive services and she owns the whole Watson constellation. Okay. Uh, so when you say from, owns it, what do you mean by that? Um, 
she runs the engineers that tweak it, improve it. It's, it's hers. It's her project. It's her project. Um, okay, got it. She yeah, owns she's the project. The, she, she's the chief technology officer for, for cognitive services that owns all that. And so, so on the second day we met together, she pulls me in, in aside and, and says, this is the most exciting project we have in front of us. And I, I turned around to Jim and he and I like little kids. We're like, Whoa. <laughs> that's, that's, that's cool. Um, <laughs> and, and at one point she asked me, well, Kevin, wouldn't it be ideal if at some point we could train Watson to create these narratives? And I said, yes, it would, because I always say yes before I say no. Uh, yes, it, it would be ideal. But the problem is Watson can't tell the difference between sense and nonsense. All it can do is hoover up consensus. And if we're right that the world is basically operating in a pre-Copernican economic environment um, or an alchemist you know, scientific base, if we're right, that means the consensus is always going to be wrong, right? I mean, there's a reason why the Fed, you, you'd expect the Fed, monkeys throwing a dart at a dartboard is going to get it 50-50, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But professional economists in the Fed get it wrong 80, 90%. Well, it's not because they're not trying it hard. <laughs> it's not because they're not really bright. They're smarter than I am. The problem is their models are all wrong. They think that the economy's a machine. It's not. An economy is more like a forest fire. It's more like a hurricane. It's more like an ecosystem or a Yosemite, right? An economy is nothing more than you getting up every day and deciding, I'm going to buy this. Uh, it's more expensive. I'm going to buy this instead. Uh, screw it. I'm not going to buy anything today, <laughs> right? Every day, you and every other person on the planet make those decisions hundreds of times a day. I'll buy this, I won't buy that, I'll buy this instead, I won't buy anything, right? And what that communicates to everyone else through the price signals is what's valuable, right? It, and it, it's real data. It tells us what we should study in school. It tells us what we should, businesses we should go into, what businesses we should close, right? It's real information communicated globally in this open market auction that's constantly running 24-7. That's the real economy. That's the real world. You know, 30 years ago, if you and I were brilliant economists working in the Soviet Union, and they had really smart people on this problem. Our job would be to sit here with stacks of papers before computers, you know, pencils and stacks of paper, and calculate on a monthly basis the prices for all the goods and services. They were setting prices by hand on 2 million items, right? Can you imagine? Hey, Teresa, mm. what, what do you think milk should what do you think milk should cost? Oh, I don't know. Make it X. <laughs> what about iron ore? Oh, make it Y. <laughs> That's literally what they were doing. Now, now they had you know rooms and rooms and rooms of formulas on blackboards, but it was all just gobbledygook and nonsense, right? If, it, um, if you go to the very left end side of that of that formula, which I did once in a Marxism class, I went to the very left hand side of the board. The whole room was full of equations. I'm like, oh, this is really impressive, and it's all garbage. And the professor was really annoyed at me. I was a pretty young kid. I'm like, show me where this input comes from. You just walk over to the far left side of the equation, right? So how do you know what Cole's cost is going to be, right? You're, you're, you're making up your inputs, and then you're working them through this you know, room-size equation to pretend you've you got a scientific process. But your inputs are made up. 
and you know, I lasted in that class for a day. But nothing's changed, except they've gotten more efficient. So the Soviet Union crashed and burned, as Ludwig von Mises knew they would, right? Because if you divorce yourself from price signals, you can't tell if you're creating or destroying value, right? It's like bowling with a, a sheet between you and the pins. You have no idea what you're doing. Today, we're doing the exact same thing. We're just more efficient about it, right? And so instead of trying to do price controls, you know, if we're on a city council and some knucklehead in the room says, you know what, milk is just too expensive. The poor can't afford that. Milk should be, milk should be 50 cents a gallon, right? And the room's like, yay, because they're morons. You and I know what's going to happen next, right? If we arbitrarily set a price cap of 50 cents, there'll be no milk on the shelves tomorrow, right? Right. Because if, if we're dairy farmers, we can't deliver milk. You know, we can't produce it, deliver it, get it on the shelves for 50 cents. We're just, no, we don't go out of business. We just stop making milk or right? make something else. And, and so most people in America get that. They, they, they pretty well understand that. But flip it on its head and they always screw this up. They get this completely backwards. So we're on a city council and some jackass goes, you know what? The poor, the poor aren't making enough money. You can't live on a minimum wage. They need a higher minimum wage. We think it should be $15 an hour. Yeah, that's the ticket. $15 an hour. And the room goes, yay. And you and I just look at each other and go, oh, man. So you just made it a crime to hire anybody whose labor is not worth $15 an hour. Just like you made it a crime to deliver milk, right, above 50 cents a gallon. Well, guess what? Just like there's no milk, now there's no jobs. You just made it a crime to hire those people, right? And so, so most – some people understand that, not as many, because corrupt politicians have an interest in – pretending they don't understand it because it gets them votes from an innumerate population that can't do math. So, cause it sounds compassionate, right? Yeah, of course. Everybody wants the poor to do better. Yeah, okay. Well, you just threw them all out of work. How's that help? Right. But anyway, so other than that manipulation, what our central banks are doing is the same manipulation that we were doing with stacks, paper and pencils as Soviet economists a few seconds ago, but now they're doing it more efficiently. They're doing it with one the price of currency itself, the one thing everything else is priced in, right? But it's the exact same process. It's the exact same concept. It's the exact same conceit, the hubris, the fatal conceit that, that any group of people or person can have enough data to know what the inputs on the left end of that equation are supposed to be, right? They have no idea what milk should cost. They have no idea what labor should cost, except letting the free market sort itself out in a balance between supply and demand. And they have no idea what interest rates should be, right? Interest rates are a signal. They're the rental price of money. And when your, your listeners don't have a high time preference and they're ready to bank money and save, interest rates will begin to decline because there's more and more money available. Uh, our competitor bank down the street's got money and and the rental rate begins to drop. Those are real signals that tell business people real things. And when they monkey with those because they think they're clever and because they think the economy is a machine, they can dial up a little inflation, dial down some unemployment, right? When they think that's true and it's not, they just cause a host of unintended consequences out the other side. No different than if some forest stranger got in front of you and said, he's going to fix Yosemite. He's got a plan. He and smart people have studied it. They're going to dial up the number of badgers. They're going to dial back the number of bears. You just look at each other. You would laugh, right? Are you an idiot? That's a complex adaptive system. You can't make changes at the margin. 
and calculate the output. You have no idea. You're not God. And yet we listen to central banks and governments blather on. Um, and, and, instead of picturing them standing in front of a thermostat, which is what they think they're doing, and dial up a little inflation, you should think of them as 10-year-olds standing at the dials of a nuclear reactor. They have no idea what they're doing. Uh, and, and the point for your listeners is not to despair, <laughs> but it is to shake off the learned helplessness, this idea that these are really difficult topics. Who am I to judge? They sound like they know what they're doing. They wear beards, right? They went to cool schools that have cool names. Surely they must know what they're doing. And, and you got to shake that off. You're not a seven-year-old. You're not in the backseat of a car on a stormy night. You can't just look up at your dad driving. Go, okay, it'll be okay. I go to sleep. Just go to sleep in the back of the car, right? There are no adults behind the wheel. If you understood how these people actually thought, what they actually knew, you'd be as panicked in the middle of the night as they are. They have no idea what they're doing. Any more than you would if somebody hands you a stack of paper and pencil and said, tell us what iron ore should cost. <laughs> right? So, so what that means for your listeners is you need to start moving into a defensive position. You need to get as far away from tertiary-level assets as possible, get away from derivatives and 401ks and anything that's tied to currency and get as close to primary wealth as possible. Um, you, you want precious metals. You want, you want real estate, agriculture, or income-producing real estate. You want things that can't be wiped away in the economic storm that's coming. Now, it's fine to have a percentage in, in highly speculative things, 10 20% if you want. Right? You want to play Bitcoin? Fine. You know, buy 10 different cryptocurrencies and see how that works out for you. Um, that's fine. Just know that that's what you're doing. Know that that's, you know, the highly speculative piece of your portfolio. But the rest of your assets should be in things that can't be destroyed, can't be wiped out, um, can't be revalued, right? And, and that's, that's the takeaway your, your folks should have. And they should, they should view with, they should look askance at people who, have a pretense of knowledge, people who pretend that they know what they're doing when they're manipulating the entire world's economy, right? They're not God, and they're never going to have enough data to play God. And all they're going to do is run us from one train wreck to another um, in their arrogance. And so you can't fix it. You can't stop them. The best thing you can do is try to minimize the downside and, and maybe actually make a little money when you, when you can get in front of them. So from a, a practical perspective, Mariglim has basically given you this prediction, right? Or this um, solution or uh, recommendation for what's coming in the future. Um, no, that'd be too much to say. Um, it, there's not an Austrian economist, there's not a free market Austrian economist on the planet that doesn't understand what I just said. Um, so that's not unique to Meriglim. What Meriglim does is tells me what, what that crazy Fed is going to do next, right? Um, so every Austrian, every, every practitioner that actually understands 
complexity science and that, that markets are complex adaptive systems understands what I just said. That's, that didn't take a Merigleam subscription. What Merigleam can do is help you understand what specific global macro events are going to occur next in this process, right? So, so all Austrians know fiat currency regimes die violent deaths in a crack-up boom, as Mises called it. You can't begin hyperinflating a currency to buy your way out of debt. Um, for example, if, you're, if your sister came to you and said, hey, she wanted you to put some money into your, her husband's company, your brother-in-law's company, you say, okay, well, tell me the numbers. Well, he makes $2.5 million a year. Okay, that's good, cool. What's his, what's his net profit? Well, he didn't really have any. Okay. Um, how, how much is, then he must be going into debt. How much is he going into debt? Um, about $6 million a year. What? <laughs> what? What's he owe? Well, you know, in short-term obligations, he owes $20 million. But long-term, if you count the pensions that he owes his employees, it's closer to $100 million. Oh as shocking goodness. as those numbers are, right? Replace the millions with trillions. I just gave you the United States. Uh, that's, that's us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's us. We have $2.2 trillion in income. We spend more than $6 trillion a year. And, and we lie about it badly. We'll, we'll say it's a trillion-dollar deficit, right? But the same people that say that publish the actual numbers, the GAO. They publish the actual numbers, Right. And all they've done is taken the unfunded liabilities out of the data and dropped it in the footnotes. It's still there in the report. So if you take it out of the footnotes, put it back in the damn data, just like we would make any company in America report their unfunded pension liabilities on their balance sheet, we're actually going down $6 trillion a year. We owe $20 trillion, we admit to, but we actually have about $100 trillion in unfunded pension liabilities, for which if we were a company and wanted to be solvent, We'd have to set aside $75 trillion right now, today, in long-term accounts to be able to pay that future debt. Well, we don't, we don't, we don't even have, <laughs> we don't have anything. Zero. We, we can't even cover our current bills, let alone set aside that reserve fund. So we're broke now, right? It's, it, that's the situation. And, and it's a confidence game. And at some point, people will lose confidence. And when they do, overnight, your dollar will reprice against gold. Jim thinks to ten to thirteen thousand dollars an ounce. I think closer to fifty thousand. That's only because he's doing the math at a forty percent coverage of base money, and I'm doing it at a one hundred percent coverage because that's what happened in 1980. So, at some point, you're going to go to bed and you're going to wake up the next day, and your dollar is going to be wiped out because that's what governments do. They don't. They don't honestly default. They don't just get up one day and say, you know what, folks, you know, we've been buying your elections for a hundred years, promising you stuff we could never pay for, but you know, it's just kind of come home to roost and sorry, didn't, you know, you screwed up, you trusted us, right? No politician's going to have that kind of, you know, you're to get up there and do that. Um, cause history will just remember they were the problem, right? Nobody will understand that they just circumvented a much, much greater problem to follow if we don't fix this. So nobody's going to have the moral courage to take on the, you know, the blame of history for having ended it, right? So they just keep it going and hoping it doesn't blow up on their watch. But blow up it will. 
And so your, 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 your listeners need to understand, your listeners need to understand that that is inevitable. And, and, and go ahead and position themselves for what must happen. And that way, when they wake up and they see their neighbors, fellow neighbors lined up at ATM machines getting their hundred dollars a day or whatever it is, you know, they're fine. They're okay. They've got some fresh water. They got some food in the house. They got a monster box of silver. Um, so you can buy some groceries in extremis. And we're not talking Mad Max. It's not going to be the end of the world. And all the houses will still be there and the businesses and the farms and factories will all still be there the next day. But there'll be a massive transfer of ownership and there'll be a massive destruction of anything whose value was tied to currency. Um, and so the more you can be away from that, um, the safer and better your, your folks are. So Marilyn is for who? Is that for the uh, individual institutional investors? Institutional investors. No, no, it's institutional investors. We're going to charge a ridiculous amount of money for this. And, and we will target folks that are managing something like $3 billion assets and above. The, for your, because this is, is a the sort of thing that if it's a commodity, it loses its value, right? If everybody knows the future, then mm. there's no, there's no consensus. So we can, now that, that said, at our price point and a 10 time multiple to top line revenue, which is what a, a B2B SaaS company gets because of that on current, that recurring revenue model, uh, we don't have to sell very many of these and the company is worth a fortune. So that's, there's that. For your listeners who are accredited investors and interested, check out the website. If you like what we're doing, you can, uh, uh, the raise is open probably another couple of months, maybe a little less. Uh, if you want to throw some money in and join Jim and I, you're, you're most welcome. The, the government gets a vote in that. You have to be an accredited investor. But, um, you're, you're most welcome. And, and in the meantime, Jim and I write a lot. If you check out our blog at Marigleme, you can put that in your RSS feed and every time we publish something, you'll get it. And that will go a long way to helping you navigate what's coming as well. Fantastic. Uh, a couple, a couple quick questions because we are running out of time. Sure. Um, you mentioned gold. I know Jim has a preference for gold. What do you think about silver? Great question. So personally, and, and actually with Marigleam, I've told Jim we're going to do this with the Marigleam Treasury as well. I would go 70% silver, 30% gold today mm. in, in your precious metals. I use gold as a short form for precious metals. I should be more clear about that. I mean gold and silver. And then today, I would do a 70-30 split in silver's favor. When you see the, the, the gold-silver ratio this far out of whack, you know, for your listeners, for thousands of years, silver was on average 12 ounces of silver would buy you an ounce of gold. For the last 20, 30 years, it's been banging around 20, you know, 15 to 20 ounces of silver. Today, uh, I haven't checked this morning, but last week, it was 81 ounces of silver to buy an ounce of gold. That is historically out of whack. And, you know, everything reverts to the mean, right? So you know that's going to reverse. And so when, when precious metals take off, and the momentum behind them has already started to swing, when silver goes, it, it'll be like a beach ball coming up out of, underwater, right? And, mm -hmm. and it will move violently, as will gold, but silver will move much faster. 
So your your percentage of return is going to be much greater in silver. So so for the foreseeable future, at least until you see silver back to around 30 to 1, um, you should overweight in silver. And how quickly do people need to prepare? When do you so if you, and I, if, you, if you and I ran, I, I actually think it's this year, but if you, ran, if you and I stepped out and, and we're running a, a, a ski slope, right? We're running a, a ski resort. And you look up on the hill, and, and you and I have been doing this for years. We can tell at a glance that is an unstable snow mass. And when that cuts loose, that's going to kill everybody on the slopes, right? What we don't do is sit down and try to calculate which snowflake is going to be the one to trigger that avalanche, right? Mm. We just don't, we don't do that. We either close the slopes or we start throwing dynamite, firing cannons, whatever we got to do to bring that thing down, right? You don't try to calculate the moment that snowpack lets loose and kills everybody below it. And, And it's the same problem here. You can know what's coming, and have no idea when it's going to happen. And so that's, it, it's the kind of thing where you'd, you'd rather be a year early than a day late. Because when you wake up and they've already repriced against gold, you're not going to be able to buy gold at any price. You won't have access to it, right? Sovereign banks, some connected people, maybe governments, they will. You won't, right? It'll be too late. And, and everything you thought you had priced in dollars at least, is now worth 10 cents. It'll buy 10 cents worth of what it could buy the day before. This is what they do. um, In the history, over and over and over again, there's nothing new. We did it in the United States at least three times. The last one was in 33, 34, when they they seized all the gold or forced you at gunpoint to sell your gold at at the fixed price and then turned around and devalued the dollar 70% against it. And they captured all the cream of that because they'd already taken all the gold. Um, so, so they're going to do it again. They don't have any choice. They don't, they, it's not that they want to. It's not that they get up in the morning, rub, you know, gleefully rubbing their hands like cartoon villains. Oh, how can we screw our pensioners and our retirees and savers? No, they're just they're just incompetent, and they run us off a cliff. And like Wiley Coyote, they're just about to look down and realize there's no ground beneath their feet, and they don't have any choice. And so you'd rather not wait until they figure that out. Go ahead and get some silver, throw it in a closet and forget about it. Open a gold, silver, go open an account with either gold money or bullion vault. Throw some assets in that every chance you get, um, and you'll be fine. Jim would say do 10, 20% of your assets and that, and you'll, you'll be fine. Think of it as an insurance. Um, I'm a little bit more than Nassim Taleb. I take an 80% approach. I want rock-solid safety in 80%, and the other 20% I'll put on the most crazy, high-flying, speculative things I can. Um, so, you know, your individual listeners should, you know, do what they think best. But at a minimum, they should have 10 to 20% of their assets in precious metals, and then they'll be fine, whatever comes. They'll, they'll come out the other side okay. Well, certainly this has been a very interesting conversation, fascinating (laughs) marriage of traditional financial forecasting and cutting-edge science. I mean, this is really very, very, um, very cool, Kevin. 
And uh, it will be exciting to see how this predictive analysis will enable smarter investing in coming years. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today on Living Wealthy Radio. And please let our listeners know again how they can find you online. Sure. On at Maragleam.com, M-E-R-A-G-L-I-M.com. There's a blog that you can subscribe to the RSS feed so you can follow along with our writing. Or on the very front page, you can just hit any of the videos and it'll take you to the offering. And you can can see if you want to participate with Maragleam as an investor. Excellent. Well, again, thank you so much. This was great. Thank you, Teresa. It was a real pleasure. Thanks. You've been listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard around the web on livingwealthyradio.com, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. Download or subscribe to our podcast to hear a new show every week. I am Teresa Kuhn, and I hope you'll join me again next week as I show you ways to live wealthier. Resources are available for you on our website at livingwealthyradio.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.